Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, retired NYPD Sergeant Bill Cannon, a 27-year veteran of the NYPD. So some new, well, not that new, but some new happenings in the Ruby Frankie case. Specifically, uh, she was in court today. But the court appearance she was in today has more to do with the actual child custody case than it does with the actual criminal charges. Uh, a judge ordered the child custody case be closed to the public. So in essence, there is a, a gag order. A Utah judge decided to seal the hearings and documents related to the welfare and placement of Ruby Frankie's children one of the two court cases involving the mother who ran a popular YouTube channel about her large family before her August arrest on suspicion of, of uh, CA, we'll call it. Fourth District Juvenile Court Judge Sukata P. Bazile issued the ruling to close the juvenile court case on October 10th ahead of pretrial hearings scheduled for Tuesday in Provo, where Bazile oversaw the case's last public hearing on September 18th. Uh, Judge Basile said in her order that while she recognizes the media and public interest in this case and values transparency, the court can't guarantee a fair, impartial, and private process for the Frankies and their children without adequate safeguards to shield the children from the intrusive effects of media coverage related to this case. The media and the public are restricted from observing all future court hearings in this case according to the court order. Extended family members will be allowed to attend after the court verifies their relationship to the children, the order states, but are restricted from talking about information they learn at hearings with, with any media outlet person or organization not affiliated with the case and cannot post about the hearings on social media. This is all according to the Salt Lake Tribune. Ruby and Kevin Frankie's four minor children were taken into Division of Child and Family Services, the custody of, after Ruby Frank's, Frankie's August 30th arrest. She and her business partner, Jody Hildebrand, a licensed mental health counselor, were each later charged with six felony counts of aggravated, aggravated CA. And we all know the story. Neighbors called police when Frankie's 12-year-old son escaped Hildebrandt's home in Ivins, about 260 miles away from Frankie's home in Utah County, to ask neighbors for food and water. Neighbors said the child had duct tape on his wrists and ankles, and police said Frankie's 10-year-old daughter was later found malnourished in the home. So these are, are um, the, the allegations. Uh, the arrest and court proceedings have attracted intense interest from followers online where Frankie and her family appeared on a parenting advice YouTube channel called Eight Passengers. It had more than 2 million followers at its height, though it drew controversy for videos that showed various punishments for the Frankie children, such as banning the oldest son from his bedroom for months because he pranked his brother. The channel was deleted last year, and Frankie had since been working with Hildebrandt on Connections, a self-improvement program that offers DVDs, workshops, workbooks, and other materials. Kevin Frankie, the husband, who's been separated from his wife, had been seeking custody of the four children since Frankie's arrest. 
The family's two other children are both older than 18 and are not part of this case, although 20-year-old Shari Frankie had regularly attended court hearings. So again, this case, we separate it into the, this is the child custody part of it. And then, of course, we have the criminal part of it. Now, Kevin Frankie, the husband of Ruby Frankie, is, of course, trying to get custody of the younger children. However, we have questioned on this show what role Kevin Frankie had in this, if any. And I find it difficult to believe that he had no involvement in this, although he's been separated from his wife for 14 months. However, prior to that, he was part of the Eight Passengers YouTube channel. He was part and parcel to what was witnessed by many people who complained about that. We're going to get deeper into this, but first, hang on to your hat because you're entering the police off the cuff real crime stories, and we're going to get deeper into this after we play this. There has to be some common sense. Yes, sir. They have the car stopped at 10th and Grant, Michael Biden. We still don't know who pulled the trigger. Folks, we're back, and I'm glad to say with me today to to discuss this, especially the legal end of this case, the child custody case versus the criminal part of the case, is retired NYPD sergeant, professor, lawyer, Professor Mike Geary. Welcome to the show, Mike. Hey, Billy. Good evening. Good evening, everybody. Thank you for having me on. So, Mike, you saw the obviously the judge's gag order, and you can understand that because of um, the, the children are minors, and the the media has been reporting on this, and there's nothing sacred out there. Everything is out into the media, out into the public, and I believe that the judge was concerned for the uh, welfare of the children, having all of this information get out there to the press. Your thoughts? Yeah, but I think it's a very prudent uh, move by the judge um, because you've seen these, we've seen these cases with the, you know, any sort of sensational cases, uh, the media, it, it becomes a feeding frenzy because everybody wants to know about it and they push the story out there and it gets all over. And, you know, there is a lot of probably dirt that is going to be raised about the goings on that um, maybe only right now. The uh, prosecuting attorney knows in the criminal case, and and the investigating officers know. This part of the case is is a civil case, is a civil part, and it's to determine um, where the children will be placed because uh, you have uh, four uh, minor children, and so therefore, uh, Miss Blanchard, um, Ms. Um, uh, Virginia Blanchard, she's what's called a guardian ad litem. A guardian ad litem is a is, is like a family court. A person who is appointed by the judge to make sure that the children's best interests are being represented while 
you know, the parents um, have their uh, say about where, and the state has to say about where the children are going to go. And her job is specifically to guard solely the interests of the children and nothing else. And she really pushed for this. And I think it's a great idea. You don't want these children to uh, be, in, be intimidated in any way and and, uh, and have the privacy because this, there's going to be a lot of things that probably really shouldn't be uh, broadcast to the media right now. That'll that'll come later on during a criminal trial. And even then, there may be times when there may be a uh, the, the media may be uh, not allowed into court. And I, I think the gag order is a great idea, too. 100%. I want to play a little bit of this on Good Morning America about um, Ruby Frankie's court appearance today and also the search warrant that was um, enforced on her home. Uh, I would imagine it was about a week ago. Two parenting influencer Ruby Frankie charged with child abuse. She's due in court today as we're getting a first look at exclusive new body cam video of police swarming her home. Juju Chang has been following this story for us. Good morning, Juju. Good morning, Michael. You know, when you see this body cam video, you see how seriously police are taking the investigation. Charges of felony child abuse are always disturbing. But what was shocking in this case was that their mom, Ruby Frankie, made a name for herself giving parenting advice. Today, we are starting off our day the way we do every day. Popular momfluencer Ruby Frankie, known for her tough love approach to parenting. Keeping them home from school and wiping the floorboards would like really bring pain. Now set to face a Utah judge over the custody of four of her six children as she faces felony charges of child abuse. You two stay on that corner. And this morning, exclusive body cam footage obtained by ABC News showing the moments police swarm Frankie's Utah home the day of her arrest on August 30th. Police department! Guns drawn as police scour room to room in Frankie's home for more of her children after one of them escaped from a house of her business partner. You know, folks, I apologize. This was just released today. This actually occurred on August 30th, right after her arrest. They did this uh, search warrant. Nearly four hours away in Ivan's, Utah. I just had a 12-year-old boy show up here at my front door asking for help. He's emaciated. He's got tape around his legs. He's hungry and he's thirsty. According to court documents, authorities arrived to the Ivan's home to find Ruby's 10-year-old daughter described as emaciated. But more exclusive body cam confirming the whereabouts of the two middle children. Well, we have to physically see her. A different police agency finding them miles away and turning them over to the state. This as estranged husband, Kevin Frankie, who's been separated from his wife since July 2022, fights for custody of their four minor children, all currently in the care of the state. Some of the alleged claims of neglect reported on this 911 call made by their oldest daughter, 20-year-old Sherry Frankie, back in September 2022. Hi, um, my name is Sherry Frankie. My four younger siblings are living in Springville, and my neighbors have been telling me that they have been left home alone for about four or five days. Records indicating police responded to the Frankie home more than a dozen times in the last few. You know, Mike, this is the uh, the very video we spoke about that the uh, the police didn't do anything. They went there. They knocked on the door. The kids didn't open the door, and they didn't boom the door and get in there. And you and I find that outrageous, being from New York City, that if there's the term we'll, we use is imminent danger, 
And right. in my opinion, based on that call, there was imminent danger. And they don't need a search warrant. This is no. search, uh, an emergency exception to a search warrant. Mm -hmm. And they can just boom the door. But yet they did not do that. I found that to be ridiculous. Yeah, Billy, it's in New York City. If we went to an apartment where there was a, a, a call, 911 call of a kid uh, crying or screaming or something like that, um, you're you're going. You're going as fast as you can. You go to the front door. You knock. If that doesn't work, you go down. You know, we climb up to the roof, go down the fire escape, and look in the windows. You know, you you got to find that kid. Um, you know, you you got to make entry. Uh, I remember doing this times where you get a a call of a of a kid screaming, and then the parents don't want to let you see the kid. I'm not let. I would tell them, I'm not leaving here until you open the door. I need to see that child, and and that's it. And once I see the child's okay, I'm leaving. I think they just probably knocked on the door. Maybe they didn't even walk around the house. I mean, I would have walked around the house and been looking in all the windows with my. If it was at night, I got my flashlight. Um, well, Mike, they they saw the kids and they heard the kids, but the kids were trained not uh, to open the door for anyone. I would, I would have, I would have gotten a, a window or door open. I mean, one of the things I realized just recently, I was looking over at Utah uh, law. They have what's called a free range parenting law. And it's designed to allow to allow parents to give their children free reign to be out unsupervised. It's meant to have, you know, uh, it what it does, it limits the uh, idea or the definition of neglect so that a parent can't be arrested for neglect if their child is walking to and from school unsupervised or playing in a park unsupervised. And, so, and some people feel that perhaps that sort of lackadaisical attitude, which is, you know, nothing new. Um, you remember how you and I were raised years ago. You didn't have all, all the, the way things are done nowadays is very different. Maybe the police were just saying, you know, oh, the kids are unsupervised. Well, free range parenting, you know, free, free range parenting, like whatever. Um, I would want to lay eyes on those kids. I want to see them. Um, I'm sorry that the uh, they were there a dozen times and took no action because this could have been taken care of you know, six months before, before the, uh, occurrence with the child going to the neighbor's house with the, with the duct tape on them. That's, it's really disturbing. Absolutely. Uh, the fact, you know, again, the term is imminent danger mm -hmm. and the older right. sister was calling and saying, my siblings have been left alone for three or four days. They're, they're, they're too young to take care of themselves. Who's giving them food? Who is looking out for their welfare? So, right. yeah, I think that the police had to insert themselves a little better than they did, you yeah. know. Definitely. Years, as early as 2018, and a wellness check in 2022. Authorities arresting Ruby and her business partner in Connections, Jody Hildebrand. The two now face six counts each of felony child abuse, each charge carrying a penalty of 15 years in prison. The criminal side could actually have a lot of influence on the family case because these are charges related to child abuse, child neglect. And when family judges are looking to determine where kids should have custody, where they should live, those types of charges can heavily affect that determination. Now, we reached out to attorneys for both Ruby and Kevin Frankie about their custody battle, but have not heard back. Legal experts say, though, that the two adult Frankie children could apply for custody themselves. Meanwhile, Ruby Frankie and her business partner and co-defendant, Jody Hildebrand, were denied bail or are in jail as the case unfolds. Guys? Okay, Juju, thanks. 
You know, Mike, big, big uh, question I have here is this is a child custody hearing, right? Right. And when you talk about putting the cart before the horse, this is coming a little too soon, in my opinion, because there's no results on the um, criminal charges. That's However, right. I would think no judge in his right mind would even consider, of course, giving custody to Ruby Frankie, who's one of the people being charged here. But I have other questions about Kevin Frankie. Why should he get custody? And guess what? He didn't. The kids are still in the custody of um, the Division of Child and Family right. Services, DCFS. And that, of course, is a learned and smart judge because what judge could say, oh, Yes, I'm going to give custody to Kevin Frankie, who's been AWOL for 14 months, mm -hmm. who didn't seem to insert himself into this case. I have some I have some issues with that. Your thoughts? Billy, I think it's a good point because, um, you know, you're looking at the at uh, the uh, husband and he he may be uh, himself, uh, not maybe not right now, but himself in the future, uh, a defendant um, because he's he may be considered to have known and not taken care of these children when he could see what was going on. Uh, I would think that uh, the prosecutor will probably be in contact with the judge. Uh, there'll probably be a statement issued regarding, uh, the, you know, where the, where the uh, status of the investigation is into his uh, doing whatever he was. Is he going to be cleared? Because you do not want as a judge to turn over these, uh, the children to the, the father and even the biological father, because they could be just as abusive as the mothers and have him perhaps end up being arrested in a few months from now. So I think the judge should go very slow, take this very careful. And I think that's what they're doing is terrific. And uh, because when these children testify in court regarding um, what's gone on, because um, there, apparently there was also some uh, allegations by Ruby Frankie that... Um, some of her older children were, were abusing her younger children. You know, it's going to be an interesting uh, court appearance, uh, very uh, interesting hearing. And, you know, the husband may be implicated by what the children say. So I, I think it's great that they're going really slow. You don't know what's going to happen when these kids get into court and testify under oath about what their mother did, what their siblings did, what their father may or may not have done that may not at right this point m might not be known, but it might be all cleared up with the children's testimony. I think it's great. They're going very slow. You know, Mike, one of the problems I have with, um, of course, them going slow is the kids are in mm -hmm. under the custody of Division of Child and Family Services, which is never in any state in this country a pleasant thing for a kid to go through. I think any kid would much rather be with a family member. And right. uh, I don't, but again, as you're saying, the judge must proceed slowly. He cannot just make a rash decision and say, oh, I'll give it to your grandmother or to the older siblings. Apparently they're old enough to get custody. But what uh, I would imagine, um, I believe Shari Frankie, She's 21 years old. How qualified would she be to raise her four siblings or even financially able to raise her four siblings? So even though she's an adult by by law, I don't and, and you know, I don't know what 21-year-old would want to take on that responsibility. Your thoughts? Yeah, Billy, it's it's a really difficult uh 
you know procedure here because there you got to look to see outside the unit immediate family are there aunts uncles on either the husband's side or the, the father's side or the mother's side um aunts uncles grandparents older cousins or something like that hopefully hopefully some family member will step forward with who has the ability to provide shelter food guidance and love for these children maybe an aunt or an uncle or something like that you hope that happens yeah dcfs is, is not the place to be there are some great people i knew some uh, cops who are actually on a list in new york city for like 24 hour seven day a week emergency call to take in children in emergency um and they're beautiful people they're they're out there volunteering but uh, you, no matter what, you would really prefer having those children with with a, a blood relative if you can. And hopefully somebody will step up and give the judge uh, the ability to place that child out of DCFS custody and into the custody of, of a family member. Fingers crossed on that one. If there's a family member that's competent enough mm -hmm. and that is uh, eligible to be able to take these kids, you don't want them to go from one bad situation to another one, you know, that's right. That's so right. This is, this is law and crime. A new little report on this today for a scheduled scheduled mediation hearing concerning her children, Frankie and her business partner, Jody Hildebrand faced child abuse charges for allegedly abusing and starving Frankie's two young children. The charges were filed after Frankie's 12 year old son escaped Hildebrandt's home and asked the neighbor to call 911. Police say the child had opened wounds from being tied up and duct taped on his wrists and ankles. Police also found Frankie's malnourished 10 year old daughter was at Hildebrandt's home as well. The Frankie family had previously come under fire for strict parenting decisions on their now defunct YouTube channel called Eight Passengers. YouTube removed the channel from their platform earlier this year. Now, during the run of Frankie's YouTube channel, Eight Passengers, viewers expressed concerns multiple times about the parenting that was being displayed on that channel. How was this able to go on for so long? In some of Frankie's videos, she described some of her disciplining practices towards her children. And in one video saying she would not feed her kids breakfast until their chores were finished. What are your thoughts on this? We at the Law and Crime Network definitely want to know. How important is it for her to now face these charges uh, that have been allegedly occurring during the run of the YouTube channel? I asked that question to our guest. You know, Mike, we had have discussed this in the past, is that what better evidence in this case, at least as per Ruby Frankie, than the eight-passenger show on YouTube? They can pull that up and just, it's like, you know, built-in videotaped evidence with sound and and feelings and expressions and hard to make an excuse that I didn't do that when you're there admitting to what you're doing live on the screen. Yeah, all of those previous statements that she made voluntarily to the, to the camera and that were, were posted online, that's all admissible in court. And she could put a spin on it any way she wants. But, you know, you're going to have, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, um, hopefully this will, have a jury, this will be a jury trial, and they could just sit there and look at it and say, you know, is it reasonable that my child doesn't get a bowl of cereal or some oatmeal or something before they do their chores? They have to wake up 
and do their chores, whatever the chores are, before they e I'm even willing to feed them. Um, the fact that people were um, more than one, many, many, many people over a long period of time were really quite uh, sickened, shocked, scared about what they saw. And, you know, with a smile, the stuff was delivered with a smile. And, um, yeah, th this is uh, she's going to have a hell of a time trying to explain or put a spin on that. And, uh, you know, um, I think she's going to be sunk by her own words and her own actions right there for everybody to see. Definitely. Absolutely. And engaging in these behaviors. And, you know, I, I think it is people wanting to be of the moment. And, you know, a lot of these channels find like minded people. There's a lot of content out there and people then tend to gravitate towards people who might think, this behavior is fine. So maybe some of us are shocked by it, but maybe there are other parents out there who think this is the right way to raise your child. And I'm glad that she's validating, you know, some of the insanity I'm doing in my own home. So, I, you know, I think uh, that's a large aspect of it. You, you find that on social media. I'm sure you see that where groups tend to find content that answers to them, that, that, that responds to them, where other people look at it and say, how is that even possible? You would put that out publicly. Now, Afi, one of the things that we would do as prosecutors when we would call upon something like this is that you have to take this this evidence, especially electronic evidence, social media evidence, very carefully because there are a lot of people who pose to do things and say there's certain things and say there's certain people that they're not. But that's going to be a hard road for her. You tell me if it's not considering how the child was or the children were discovered by law enforcement authorities. Uh, so it's it's all about corroborating evidence. So um, if she says one thing, um, you know, how, how are we going to corroborate that? You know, when we go into the house, what do we find? Again, the husband is going to have to, well, he may have to testify, but they're going to get information from him. He's going to have to tell what he knew, what he saw. And then uh, the, the older children, they are going to have, I think, pretty uh, reliable accounts, pretty reliable testimony. So I don't think it's um, it's going to be a big issue to match up what she said online um, to probably the, the absolute worst conditions that were actually happening in the home. You know, Mike, one of the things that she sort of raises here, of course, the evidence against her, but people take, you know, they take great umbrage when the state interferes with their parenting. Sure. And you hear many people say, if I want to slap my kid, I'll do it. I'll do so. And you know something, to a, to a certain degree, that's true and that that's okay. But when it becomes an abusive thing uh, and it becomes something that is done all the time, I think that's where the line sort of has to be drawn. And uh, obviously here, withholding food, that's right. not okay. No, that's, that's not okay to withhold food till your kids had, had performed their chores. I think I don't think, know if there's any parents out there that would think that that's okay, but clearly, to me, it's not okay. Yeah, like the commentator said, um, you know, she may claim not to give them food before uh, before they do the chores, but in fact, maybe she's just saying that for effect, and in reality, she she may actually feed them, you know. So maybe it's a lot of acting, but as the other late the female commentator said. Well, you can corroborate that by just the testimony of the uh, of the of the children, the older children, children especially, to see if that is actually true that she would do something like that. 
I mean, um, yeah, nobody likes the state to sit there and interfere with uh, parenting. Um, and, and, and that's a very touchy, sensitive subject. I mean, you could have um, parents who are very strict and may not, you know, slap their child. You may have parents who may be very permissive and, um, and actually hit their child. So it's, uh, you know, everybody has different parenting styles, but the, the, the thing I think that really corroborates the idea that she actually is really technically abusing those children very, very much is the fact that the boy escaped from the home. And he had duct tape on him and he was actually below weight and he was actually hungry and he was actually emaciated and he was uh, thirsty. You know, somebody could say something, oh, my mom and dad are tough. They're tough on me. I get hit. But if they are well-dressed, well-fed, they're going to school, they've got books in their home, they got food in the refrigerator. You know, this is one of the things that you look for when you get a child abuse call. You, I remember going in many, many people's apartments, walking in there. Are there books? Are there, is there, are there games for the children? Are there coats in the closet that fit them? Are there, um, is there food in the refrigerator? Um, so, yeah, the idea that you're going to withhold food, if that's corroborated, that's really pretty sick. And, um, you know, totally uncalled for. And uh, she's um, those children are going to be able to reveal a lot of what went on behind the scenes. And a lot of it probably will will not be complimentary to Ruby Frank and her husband also. Absolutely. You know, during the time they had the eight passengers um, YouTube podcast, they hired a private investigator because they were getting threats online. Mm -hmm. And instead of him finding out that he saw some of this actual abuse himself, I want to play a little bit of this here on Law and Crime. We sit down with that PI, David Corrington, to understand what happened. Welcome to Sidebar, presented by Law and Crime, Jesse Weber. You've likely heard about the Ruby Frankie case by now, especially if you've been following us here on Sidebar. The Utah mom of six faces multiple felony child abuse charges, and this came after her 12-year-old son escaped a residence belonging to Frankie's business partner, Jody Hildebrandt. He was emaciated, he had open wounds, and after he ran to a neighbor's house who called 911, authorities discovered the boy's 10-year-old sister in Hildebrandt's home as well in very similar condition. There was evidence to suggest that the boy had been tied down as well. So Hildebrandt, Frankie, they were taken into custody. They were both charged with six counts of aggravated child abuse. By the way, each count carries up to 15 years in prison. And two of her other children were found by authorities in the care of a colleague of Frankie's. They were taken to state custody. The couple's other two children are adult children. But let's back up a second. So back in 2015, Ruby and her husband, Kevin, they started a YouTube channel called Eight Passengers, and the devout Mormon couple chronicled their family's lives online. Frankie often gave advice about parenting and childcare, homeschooling and marriage, but some of her parenting techniques seemed to a lot of people to go too far. And in 2020, the Eight Passengers channel posted a video of Frankie's then 15-year-old son talking about a punishment he had to deal with. My bedroom was taken away for seven months, and then you give it back like a couple weeks ago. I don't think our viewers know that. You're sleeping on a beanbag. I'm sleeping on a beanbag. Over. <laughs> My room back like two weeks ago. Oh, I'll give you the reason why I lost. You know, I mean, I I love the way 
I mean, I don't love, but she casually laughs at it as almost like a defense mechanism over like, she laughs knowing full well, this may not go over well with our audience that I made my 15 year old son sleep on a beanbag for seven months. And she chuckles and she laughs. Oh, is, yeah, she, is that the sign of of someone a little bit missing a few bolts in their head? Yeah, she's obviously very uncomfortable with that with his revelation. She probably never thought that would ever come up. If if the kid broke his bed and he was without a bed for a weekend and had to sleep in a bee bench there while the family went and got him a brand new bed from the department store, that's one thing. But yeah. Those months going by, she's sitting there looking at the camera and she probably wanted to die at that point. She smiles as good as she can, but it's very, very uncomfortable. She knows. You're right, Billy. You're right. Your instinct is 100% right. She knows exactly that this is not going well. And uh, unfortunately for her, um, you know, that that video is out there. Everybody could see it. That that young man can testify uh, later on in a hearing about this and, and go into more in-depth detail um it is yeah she yeah there may be a few cards missing from the deck definitely mike talk about the kids um testing testifying against a parent in this case their mother yeah what would that be like for a kid and and i'm just i i know how i feel it would be like but i'm asking you what would that be like for a kid and can you get the kid or kids to tell the truth and not to sort of soften it up because it, it's their mother. Yeah, but it's going to be very difficult for a prosecutor to um, get a lot of this information. First, probably they've already all been repeatedly, um, in, you know, interviewed by detectives, and hopefully there's some, you know, special victims detectives who may be uh, really good at, you know, speaking a five-year-old's a manner that a five-year-old could not be intimidated. And um, I'm sure there's tremendous amount of video looking at these children being invest being, you know, in interviewed by various detectives. That's, that's terrific. And that's a good way to do it. Um, so this way they understand that they're not being their first interview isn't going to be in, in a precinct station house where, you know, you've got, it's very intimidating or it's in court. Um, you're going to have those, all those, all that information from there. The prosecutor is then going to pull out from that the questions to ask on the stand. And if you're the prosecutor, you want to bring those children to a courtroom uh, ahead of time and explain to them the whole process. You're going to walk into court. You're going to sit behind this chair here. The judge will be to your right over here. There'll be a microphone. You know, we'll have a, a something for you to sit on so that you're at the right height. Uh, there might be people over here just to try to get them a little familiar with what's going to happen. And then ask them those questions, you know, uh, as gently as you can. Maybe even because they will be called by the, the prosecutor, the prosecutor is supposed to ask open-ended questions. But if the children aren't really expressing themselves, because maybe they are a little intimidated by the actual courtroom, the prosecutor can always ask the judge for permission to ask leading questions, something that the adversarial party would ask and actually say, you know, start to ask questions instead of saying, what did your mother do? Could you explain what your father did? You know, open-ended questions. If the children aren't really able to express what they want to say, 
because there's their mother right there sitting at the defendant's table. The prosecutor may ask to ask uh, leading questions and say, um, your mother did uh, take away your uh, laptop computer, didn't she? Your mother did take away your ability to sleep in your bedroom, didn't she? You know what I mean? Like uh, leading questions. And uh, a judge will probably allow that because, uh, you know, you need to get this information out there in front of the jury. And uh, it's going to be very difficult for those children because they're going to have to say things. It's one thing to talk to a detective. You've interviewed children. You know, I've interviewed children. It's one thing to say it at one point. But it's another thing to say it in a courtroom where even I used to be intimidated as a um, as, as a police officer testifying in court because it, you're everybody's just staring at you. And it's a very, very different um you know, setting. So um, it's going to be very difficult for the for the prosecutor to get the information they need. Hopefully the judge will allow them to uh, just ask leading questions. And hopefully those children will um, be able to speak frankly and, um, you know, openly about what they did. That's no, there's no guarantee. Children are, you know, very, very um, like, like adults too. You know, they might not be, um, uh, you know, uh, speaking in, in, in a way that is comp is comprehensive and that makes sense and that is actually the truth because maybe they feel intimidated or scared to talk about their parent. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. And uh, the prosecutors got um, a lot of work ahead of them. Liz Lawson asks, why would she upload incriminating evidence? I'll give a quick answer to this and you can touch upon it too, Mike. It was just so natural for her doing this sort of reality show that I don't believe she was thinking about the way it looked to her audience, that it was just a natural thing showing how, this is how we live. This is how I discipline my kids. This is what I do. If they do this, this is what I do if they do that. And I don't think it struck her until she started getting pushback that what she was doing was, outrageous to her audience and turns out now a crime you're right billy she's got yes yeah, as the other uh, gentleman who saw in the video said she was speaking to a particular audience a particular audience found her found you know found her channel found her to be refreshing probably had a lot of loyal uh listeners subscribers and she was speaking to them and knowing what who her audience probably is there's probably a lot of chat a lot of reviews She's getting a lot of uh, good mail with a lot of thumbs up all over the place. And she lets her guard down because she doesn't realize she gets so comfortable. Yeah, she doesn't realize that an, a person who is not on the same wavelength of, as her looking at this is going to be aghast. And you're right. Once she got the pushback, then suddenly it's like, Oh, I didn't want, you know, yeah, yeah. Oh man, that's not going to go over well. Yeah, no. that's what happens. That's the dynamic, yeah. And Mike, one of the most important things I forgot to mention is she was making sick money. Mm -hmm. She oh. had 2 million subscribers. She was making crazy money. So what's that old expression? If it's not broke, don't, don't fix it. it. So she probably felt that, Look, I'm making crazy money. I got 2 million people following me. They love me. Right. They love this podcast. Why would I change anything? Right. So yeah. she didn't see 
Oh, Willie says she's delusional. Yeah, she absolutely delusional. Absolutely. Folks, this is police off the cuff, real crime stories. If you like real crime, true crime from a police perspective, you're in the right place. And if you're not subscribed to us, go on our YouTube, hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up and ring that bell. And if you want to contribute to us financially, we have a Patreon with three different levels and we also have a YouTube channel membership with five different levels. You see the folks in the green font. They're part of our YouTube subscribers, friends, family here at uh, Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories. And we really appreciate all the folks that uh, subscribe to us and help this channel to be what it is. <laughs> I hope it is something. Let me get back to the um, to the law and crime, to the private investigator. My bedroom, I think so. I think the reason. At least this is the reason that's in my head. So pretty funny, but now I look back I and mean, it's pretty depressing. No, we never told our viewers. That I woke Russell up at two in the morning and told him that we're going to Disneyland. And he asked how got him and made his bed all neatly and then packed all his clothes in the suitcase. And then he walked out the door and I'm like, Russell, and he's like, what? And he's all happy. Had his sunglasses on. And I was like, we're not going to Disneyland. And he started crying and hitting me. And then he went back to bed in tears. So that that was that was not the reason you lost your room. But that was well, the other reason is because I pointed a BB gun at his face. Pointed a BB gun at his face and hung him on the basketball. <laughs> basically, basically, Chad. Oh, the day I got home too. Chad came home from Anasazi and. And Russell was like, I want to try dunking the basketball. And I lifted it up on the And he was and left him there for three minutes. And he was just hanging on there. Do you think it's funny? Because And then I walked out. If you think it's funny, then you that was seven months ago. Maybe you need longer without a bedroom. Whoa. Whoa. Chad showed that he was not able to manage himself sharing a bedroom with Russell. So when we moved. You know, Mike, that body language you see right there with her left hand by her face. Yeah. I'm not a body language expert, but that would imply to me that she's almost like trying to block out any resistance she would have in saying what she's saying. In essence, excuse me, that's, that's her right hand. Uh, it's Body language says a lot. And I think that's what she's she's sort of almost afraid what she's saying is wrong. And so she's defensive. And be, by being defensive, she places her, her right hand up on the on the right side of her face. Uh, would you would you interpret that the same way? Yeah, Billy. She you can see as as the boy is talking, she's the, the other children are laughing and she's losing control of the situation. And she kept saying, and there's other reasons why you lost your bedroom privileges and, you know, going on and on and on. And everybody's laughing and making a joke of it. And she's very stressed and she is blocking out like, like this, like, I don't want to hear what's going on. And she's right at the camera. She's not looking at him. She's not looking at the other children. She's looking right at the camera and she's assuring people that, you know, what she did uh, to the to her son was absolutely reasonable because what he had done was so egregious that um, 
that uh, he he was he needed to be disciplined in such a way. Yeah, she's very stressed at that point. Absolutely right. You, you know, this sort of thing, like, I can't take it. I'm really mad. I'm looking at the camera. Yeah, she's very stressed out at that point. I'm sure when the camera was turned off, there was hell to pay for, for those children. I think you're right. Um, yeah. The bigger room in the basement was automatically his, and I didn't have a room, but we, like, put one on hold for me. So a lot of you are like, hey, that's not fair because Chad got the bigger, the lesser bedroom and Russell got the, the bigger bedroom. bedroom. <laughs> Russell got the big bedroom and Chad got the, the smaller bedroom. Smaller. And Russell's bigger bedroom also had a bathroom. But what you guys didn't know was <laughs> Chad didn't get any room. He didn't, he didn't get anything. He was sleeping on the floor in the family room. Now that video, to our understanding, was later taken down, but viewers who watched it were very concerned. Eventually, a change.org petition was started calling Frankie an abuser. Child Protective Services ended up going to the home to check things out, but the case was eventually closed. Frankie stopped posting to the Eight Passengers channel last year, and YouTube removed it altogether earlier this year, although a reason wasn't given. We want to thank Morgan & Morgan, the largest injury law firm in America, for sponsoring. Honestly, it's sad. Not everyone has our kind of relationship. It's no longer claim at www. Sorry, I don't want to play their tonight. commercials. <laughs> well, David Corrington joins me right now to talk about what he found. David, thank you so much for coming here on Sidebar. We appreciate it. Great. Thanks for having me. Now, my understanding is, is you're in the public sector now, but you were hired as a private investigator for the Frankies a few years ago. How did you first get linked up with them? Uh, so actually, I was referred to them by, uh, I had done several other stalking threat type cases through several other uh, platforms or individuals that were influencers or high profile uh, YouTubers that had also received several threats and, and those type of things. So that I had never met uh, nor known uh, them before. Uh, so this was the first time when they called me that I had spoke to them and learned of their situation so you didn't know anything about their youtube channel or anything like that never heard of eight passengers before they called me so okay and so you meet them what did you think of them when you first met them so it was uh it was most of my interaction was actually with kevin okay uh and genuinely kevin was concerned about the safety of his family um so that was really the focus of my case initially was to try and understand not only who was making the threats, but kind of try and dig into maybe why they were making the threats. What was your impression of Kevin when you first met him? Uh, seemed like, you know, genuinely a uh, nice guy. I felt like he was genuinely concerned for, uh, you know, for the safety of his family, which clearly he was willing to pay money. Uh, he was frustrated with law enforcement, didn't feel like they were doing enough to take it seriously, which is why he, uh, he reached out to me to see if I could help maybe uh, get that process rolling a little bit quicker. So did you have any communication with Ruby Frankie? I know you said it was mostly with Kevin, but did you speak with her at all? So there was one, uh, one of the in initial conversations was with her and, and Kevin, but most of my interactions after that was just with Kevin. What about the kids? Did you have an opportunity to meet them, to talk about, to talk to them at all? Uh, no, I actually had tried to set up a meeting inside the home, and and Kevin said he didn't want to do that. Uh, mm. So we just kept everything over the phone. 
Did he say why he didn't want you to come to the home? Uh, no, he didn't. Uh -uh. Hmm. Let's talk about some of these threats. Um, what kind of threats are we talking about here? Well, there were, you know, several, uh, we had some individual, individual or individuals that were basically, it was more of a harassment where they were signing up uh, subscriptions in their name, pretending to be Ruby and Kevin. And so then they were being inundated with these emails or phone calls saying, hey, thanks for signing up or joining up. Uh, then there was the individual that uh, rang the doorbell in the middle of the night, um, which we were able to capture uh, on camera. And uh, we were actually able to capture the vehicle, but no license plates, and we weren't able to identify them. Okay, a couple of things there. Let's go back to the, so you're saying people in their name would subscribe them to like random websites and, and services, and then the real Frankies would get inundated with calls and emails? Exactly. Did you ever find out who those people were, or why they were doing it? So I was able to trace the IP addresses back and uh, working with law enforcement. I basically provided my entire report to them. Uh, you know, being that I'm no longer in law enforcement, I don't have subpoena powers and have limitations as a private investigator of what you can and can't do. So I had encouraged them uh, to subpoena uh, these companies to be able to identify where these IP addresses were coming from. Uh, I do not know, uh, they were not super forthcoming in terms of what they were doing uh, on their investigation, but I did receive information towards the end that the uh, district attorney's office had declined to prosecute the case. And that's really how we ended it, is I let the Frankies know that, listen, we've done, you know, I've done everything that I can at this point to uh, basically gather and provide the information. You know, I did go over some safety, security issues, things that they could do additionally to protect their family. What kind of what, what, what kind of subscriptions were they signing them up for? Um, just random things, and and you know, Mike, what he's investigating really is just harassment, and it's exactly. harassment's a violation. It's not a crime, and of course, you don't want it to cross over into the level of being a crime. However, again, one of the things when I watch this private investigator, I, I think right away is don't private investigators have a confidentiality clause or are they not sworn to that, uh, to that secrecy? Yeah, I've always thought, and you know, that I worked with one private investigator years ago and everything is confidential. It's between, you know, uh, I was a subcontractor to a uh, to a, a private eye, but um, everything you do and everything that uh, that uh, private eye does for the client, that's not not supposed to be, you know, made public um, because a lot of these things are divorces and, and, you know, things like that. And it's usually not criminal activity where there's the police are going to get involved later on. But, uh, you know, he was talking very openly, which which was a little bit shocking. Um, what did you pick up on the fact that Kevin? wanted to was supposedly earnestly uh, worried about his children's safety but then would not did not want the private investigator to actually go to the home where the kids lived to be inside the home talking to the children um and i'm just wondering about kevin's motivation at this point because you know he's the father who's living outside the home his wife is making a lot of money and probably supporting the family and maybe not even asking him for any sort of support. 
and maybe there was a little bit of that gravy train going on where the, the father, uh, where Kevin may have wanted some information, but also wanted to protect what was going on with his wife and the children. It's like a strange dynamic going on there. And uh, that troubled me a lot when, and I, in fact, one of your viewers in the chat mentioned that about uh, Kevin, like what's going on? Don't you want to see what's going, don't you want to get inside that house? Don't you want that investigator to see what's going on in that, inside that house? That was very disturbing. You know, Mike, also what uh, you hit it on the head sort of from left field in a way you said he didn't want the gravy train to stop. Mm -hmm. And that is 100% correct because someone in the chat said before, I wonder what someone with 2 million subscribers would make a year. And I guesstimate about a million dollars or more a year, someone with that amount of subscribers. I mean, you're taught that's crazy money, right? right. So you're 100%, Mike, that's a gravy train. Yeah. And was Kevin Frankie maybe influenced by the gravy train stopping to not maybe insert himself into certain things where he really should have as a good parent. To me, that makes him just as guilty as complicit because you're right. The, uh, the Ruby Frankie boop, boop, gravy train. Right. He didn't want that stopping. And yep. uh, I should have said stopping, but I'm a New Yorker. So I said stopping, uh, stopping. Stop <laughs> he didn't want that gravy train to stop. So yeah, I, I you know, I'm so, I've said it on numerous occasions. I don't know why at this point he hasn't been cr potentially criminally charged or at least looked at. And my only thought is that potentially the DA's office may try to use him as a witness because he's not getting off scot-free from this. No, no. They would maybe cut some kind of deal with him. And what's the lesser of two evils? Who's the most evil? Ruby right. or Kevin Frankie or of Jody Hildebrand. Of course, if you, anyone you polled our audience, everyone would say she's the most evil of all mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the most ir <laughs> evil of evil. them all. I think most people would say Jody Hildebrand. And I think when you watch her or you look into her history and the fact that she was supposed to be helping people and she was actually hurting people, that makes it even more egregious than, well, there's nothing worse than hurting children. But she was hurting multiple, multiple people. Yeah, I think the best way for the prosecutor to get leverage on Kevin to make sure that Kevin can testify is to, uh, you know, charge him with conspiracy because he was an enabler. He knew what was going on. It's obvious he knew what was going on. Charge him with some level of neglect and uh, bring him in as a conspirator, hold it over his head and have him testify. And, um, you know, then later on, you could, you know, be a little bit more uh, gentle in terms of the uh, punishment or perhaps not that that you're going to get. But you need to have a little bit of leverage on him to get him to go into that courtroom and, and say what, uh, you know, what, what people want to hear and want to know about what really went on. After all, yeah, he was out for a while but he was part and parcel of that family and that channel. And he, he might not know Hildebrand very well, but uh, I think he probably knew enough about her and the fact that his children were actually living with Hildebrand and not even living in the house with, with his wife. 
um, is very, in fact, that he didn't even want to know, uh, want the investigator to go in. Very disturbing. And uh, you need leverage on him. You need his testimony. However, the prosecutor wants to do it, um, they need to do it. Mike, I think they already have leverage on him. I think they've already approached his attorney. Good. And Good. Uh, he's being, I, I don't know for a fact, this is my intuition. And I think that he knows that. And um, he's being very sly right now. But uh, look, this is a complicated case. And as we said, as we started out today, the first part of this is the child custody part. Mm -hmm. And again, they'll get to the criminal part. But the child custody part is, is the first part. I'm going to play a little bit of this. This is um, the, uh, the niece of uh, Jody Hildebrandt and Jesse Hildebrandt speaking here. Which, by the way, each charge carries up to 15 years in prison. That's what we're talking about here. Now, we've been focusing so much on Ruby Frankie. We want to switch gears and focus now on Jody Hildebrandt. So Frankie's co-defendant and also her business partner at her connections company that provided counseling services. You know, Mike, one thing I just want to say right now is they were friends. They were business partners. They will yeah. now be adversaries because oh, yeah. they may also use... Ruby to testify against Jody if they determine that Jody is the worst of the two. Your thoughts? Yeah, Bill, there's no honor among these. You know, they they were they were friends for quite a while. They're business partners. They know each other. You know, the children are involved in this. But once you put that pressure on them, you've done it many times where you get a co-conspirator, you pit them against each other, and you know, they'll give it up uh, because they want to stay out of prison. Blame it all on the other person. They'll always say, we didn't know she was the mastermind. You know, I was just following her. She's got uh, a degree. She's uh, certified by the state to do counseling. And, you know, uh, you know, this is what something like Ruby Frank would say about Hildebrand. You know, uh, I let her be in control. Hildebrand's going to say, no, you told me what you wanted to do. You know, I took care of it. You know, your kids found solace with me because you were so dis uh, disrespectful to them and abusive. Oh, yeah. They're going to go at it like it's going to be a knife fight in a phone booth when they go to court. <laughs> oh, yeah. People. And we had the unique opportunity to interview Jody Hildebrandt's niece, Jesse Hildebrandt. You see, their father is Jody's brother. And by the way, Jesse uses they them pronouns. Now, I had this unique opportunity to interview Jesse, and they were not only so generous with their time, but also so open with what happened to them. And really, we want to thank them again for coming on. And there's a lot to get into. So let's get into it. I want to warn you right now, though, that the allegations spelled out by Jesse are very disturbing. All right, let's lay this out. And we're going to start where Jesse started off by explaining how they even wound up living with Jody Hildebrand in another state. And they knew that something might be off with Jody. So I was 16 years old when I was left in her care. Um, I was typical, angry, angsty teenager, very strict family, very um, letter of the law, very doctrinally um, influenced upbringing. 
And I was kind of a wrecking ball, I think, to my family, or at least to my parents, uh, because I questioned things. So I was living in Corona, California. We go to Utah for my grandparents' 50th wedding anniversary. We had a big party. And I got into a fight with my mom. And I went downstairs, took her phone, and woke up. I like fell asleep and woke up to a knock on the door that my parents had left and that I wasn't going with them. And that my life, as I knew it, was about to change. So it started off with me and my grandparents and at Jody's on the weekend. And then it quite quickly became me living with her full time. So imagine that. According to Jesse, their parents essentially gave up on them. And they ended up living with their Aunt Jody Hildebrand, who didn't seem to be the nicest person. Ruby Frankie's case is being widely covered everywhere right now. In fact, there were over 40 articles published in the last month on her charges alone. And often stories like this, they become sensationalized and finding objective and balanced coverage can be pretty difficult. Well, that's why we're excited to tell you about this app and website by Brown News. So in one Keep in mind that when Jesse went to live with Jody, Jody didn't have her connections company yet, but she was working as an independent therapist. And as Jesse explained about their aunt's techniques, this took a very dark turn. Jody is very smart in how she approaches her therapeutic modalities. Um, because they are so extreme, if she were just to start out, out with those things, everyone would recognize it and they would be shocked and be like, absolutely not. But she's very subtle. She's very subtle and she's very um, calculated. And she's, um, it's like a frog being boiled in, in water. You know, you start off with the cold water and slowly turn up the temperature, much how it was. So it started off with me at my grandparents and at Jody's on the weekend. And then it quite quickly became me living with her full time. And, um, and then I was, I was pulled out of school, so I wasn't allowed to go to school. Um, so I would just be with her at her office. She would put me into this little side room where I would just wait there and, and while she, like up to 12 hours a day. And the abuse, according to Jesse, started with psychological techniques. And then the other thing that she had me do is she would give me a piece of paper and she would have me write out my sins um, so then she could then read them back to me, have me get on my hands and knees and beg for forgiveness as she read them to me. Pretty startling to hear. But then Jesse says it got so much worse that it was this campaign of isolation, manipulation, and self-doubt. Her belief is that if you find identity in something, if you feel good about something externally of yourself, that is, it is a distraction to the core issue at hand. And in her mind, that means um, sin. So she strips you of identity. She strips you of credibility. And she isolates. And so she's saying everything that you say is a lie. Everything that you say is, is manipulation. You're manipulating everyone around you. You're lying and destroying everyone's life. So for the sake of everyone else's safety, we're duct taping you. You heard that right. Jesse alleges that Jody duct taped their mouth so that they couldn't speak. Think about that. And as we know, at least one of the Frankie children were allegedly tied up and had these open wounds. So that's kind of an eerie fact right there. But according to Jesse, it also got more physical. I turned around to walk and she punched me in the back and I fell down onto the ground. Um, she ended up going inside, which in hindsight is like 
pretty wild that she did that. Now, you might be thinking, that's pretty bad. But I want you to listen to this, because Jesse explained that she was forced to sleep outside in the cold. So I was sleeping outside in the snow. That was another thing. I wasn't allowed to have a bed. Um, I was sleeping in a, what she told everyone, that it was like a mummy bag, you know, sub-zero type of sleeping bag. No, it was absolutely not. This was a like $20 Walmart store brand you use at sleepovers kind of sleeping bag. Outside in the snow, in the middle of winter in Utah. Um, and her justification, because I ended up going to the police, um, her justification to the police was that she was preparing me for outdoor wilderness therapy. And this was like a kindness to me to give me one more opportunity to confess to sin. Now, I'll tell you this right now. When I heard that, I thought that this was, again, chillingly, eerily similar to the allegation from Ruby Frankie from years ago that she took her son's bed away for months as a form of punishment. That was a video that went viral as part of her uh, eight passengers YouTube channel. People really honed in on that, thought it was a form of abuse. That's when they started contacting authorities. And I just, when I heard that from Jesse, just clicked eerie coincidence, similarity. But I have to tell you that in my conversation with Jesse, one of the saddest things was how they perceived what was happening to them. And my own perception of what was happening was so like messed up and skewed. And I didn't even understand, again, like what was going, I, 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 there was like a part of me that knew that that was wrong, that what Jody was doing. But when everyone around you says it's okay, when everyone around you, because people saw, people saw right. the abuse happening and did nothing. They did nothing. And when you are passive, when you are a passive, passive observer of abuse, you are unintentionally saying, this is okay. That is what you're telling the victim. We, we've seen this before in these kinds of cases where abusers make the victims feel like it was their fault and they did something wrong. Now, again, these are allegations at this point, but again, that's just something we've seen in the past. And Jesse would say, as you just heard, that there were opportunities to stop this, but no one helped them. Now, things at the Hildebrand home eventually became so dire that Jesse felt they had no choice but to run away. But it wasn't so simple. Jesse told me that there were multiple times they tried to run away. They once went to a neighbor's house in a move reminiscent of what Ruby Frankie's child did. But the outcome was very different. So I ran away to my neighbors. Jody did find me. And this neighbor was like, look, you're a minor. I have to tell her that you're here. I don't want to. And this neighbor also was like very straightforward with Jody saying that she didn't, she didn't believe anything that she was doing was correct. And mm -hmm. so I ended so then I was, um, when I would go to Jody's work with her, she would put me in this little room, uh, had no windows. Um, and she would have me, I wasn't allowed to read unless it was books that she would assign. And then there was another time when Jesse apparently went to the local police. They say at first that they thought the officers would help, but after they spoke to Jody, they told Jesse they had to go back with her. He said that it was kind of like a 180, that the tone shifted, the mood changed when the officer spoke to Jody Hildebrand. Jesse apparently, though, even begged for the officers to just lock them away. And I was just, I just shut down. And I told her, I was like, well, can you just arrest me? Like, can you uh -huh. put me in jail? Please. Like, I will, I will go rob something. Just put me in jail. Like, I will, please. And she was like, that's not really how it works. You know, Mike, this, uh, Jesse 
Hildebrandt, the, the, this young lady here, I believe every word she's saying. And I am also, and I'm going to point at the police again, I'm also baffled that they didn't believe her. They go and talk to the abuser, and the abuser makes them do a, 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 a 360, you know, and they believe the abuser, and they don't believe her. I mean, I got, I have a real problem with that. I'm seeing at least numerous times in this case where the police did the wrong thing. Totally, they, look, this uh, Jody Hildebrandt, she uses mind control. But even worse than that, she uses punitive punishment. And anyone that would give their child to this beast is, you know, is complicit in this. And the fact that she was a marriage counselor, oh, my God. How many marriages did she uh, eviscerate, you know? Billy, she is um, – I, I, I find the uh, testimony to be very accurate because, it, as the announcer said, the, uh, it really is very similar to what, what Ruby Frank was doing. Um, what the, the strangest thing I, I saw from that was you're outside in a sleeping bag in the middle of winter in Utah. I don't care if it's a sub-zero Arctic bag or it's like she said, you know, there's Walmart specials. Um, you know, what police officer is going to allow that to happen? I mean, that's astounding. That is astounding. They There were so many touch points that the police had with various members of the family, um, the niece, the, you know, Ruby Frank's son, her daughter, children, you know, that sort of thing. Um, police were called numerous times, did not open up a door, just uh, with the children ignoring them, not even look, you know, go through a window, nothing. Um, that's to me is very, very disturbing. And I have, as much as I love law enforcement, I have to blame law enforcement. They could have stopped this um, maybe several years earlier. And the fact that they didn't, it was so lackadaisical makes me wonder about you know, any sort of domestic violence or child abuse training, if any, does it undergo any of this stuff? Um, you know, I'm shocked. I, I'm just shocked about it. As shocked as to for what they didn't do as for what Hildebrand actually did. It's very scary. Well, Mike, and the answer is uh, coming from Fuzzy Doxy on in the chat. LDS police and 100% fuzzy doxy. Yeah. They were being influenced by them. Uh, Jody Hildebrandt was their person. They referred clients to her. They yeah. protected her. I think that is exactly the case. And I believe the police were intimidated to, to, to not do their job. To They should have been doing their job. If they would have did their job properly, they would have locked up Jody Hildebrandt and it would have taken... Denise, uh, Jesse, uh, into custody for protection. There was, I think their behavior was outrageous. Outrageous. Yeah, Billy, it, 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 it really, unfortunately, because there are lack of, um, you know, action, the police could be in the future, um, civilly sued for damages done to these children because they actually had the ability to stop the abuse. Um, yeah, maybe it is LDS. Maybe it is. Maybe Jody dropped a few names that she's friendly with and the police officers were intimidated. But um, I, I would just think from what I've seen in the NYPD, I've never seen anyone who was suspected of any sort of child abuse 
um, that I could see that I've ever witnessed um, drop a name or get away with it. Cops tended to be overly solicitous of the children, not the other way around. If there's any doubt, you know, you've got to go with what you see. What do your eyes show you? A child is there out in the snow or the child has duct tape around them. These are the sorts of things where, you know, you have objective evidence of abuse. Um, I, there's no excuses for what law enforcement failed to do. Absolutely no excuses whatsoever. Right. Lynn S. Mesa, Mesa question, Billy, wouldn't items in Ruby's home be considered evidence? Why was it given to anyone except law enforcement to investigate further? 100% it would be considered as evidence, well, depending what they were looking for to prove levels of, of the crime that she's being charged with. Yes, absolutely. Uh, look, this whole case, when we we peel, as we use that uh, expression, as we peel the onion away, we see there's levels of culpability, there's levels of criminality, there's levels of incompetence, there's levels of omission, meaning failure to do something. And that the police are guilty of that. Lynn, thank you for the 199 super sticker. Much appreciated. I'm going to go to a quick um, commercial right now for our folks. If you're looking for a great attorney in a New York metropolitan area, then Joe Murray is your man. Joe is a retired NYPD police officer and a fantastic defense attorney. You can get a hold of Joe on his cell phone at 718-514-3855. Email him at joe at jmurray-law.com or go on his website, jmurray-law.com. Joe's not only a fantastic defense attorney, but a huge supporter of the Police Off the Cuff podcast. So, Mike, yeah, all these things we talk about, omission, which is a failure right. to perform a duty, which by law you're uh, required to do. And there's a lot of omission in this case. And, you know, we talk about mandatory reporters and uh, look, people were reporting this for years and nothing was done. That's the probably the second worst thing in this whole case. The first is obviously the child abuse by uh, Ruby Frank, if these charges are, are accurate and the testimony of the children is accurate. But the second is the, uh, the inexcusable conduct of the police not to lay eyes on those children all those times that they were called to that home, how they could not eyeball those children and to see, you know, and, and not, and just kind of like drive, do the drive by. Yeah. Yeah. They're there. And just keep on moving without actually doing any sort of preliminary investigation. It's inexcusable. And it, it really tarnishes law enforcement's image in many people because uh, they get the feeling that law enforcement doesn't care about children. And, you know, these are the people uh, when you're on foot post or you're in a car, in a sector car working in a precinct, you know, you're always worried about the children. You know, the adults, that's one thing. Children, they're your primary concern. And the elderly, you're the most vulnerable in our society. And the acts of omission here by the police, um, inexcusable. There's no way to defend it. And unfortunately, they could have ended this years ago and they didn't and here we are today well mike could it also be that the bosses in the mm -hmm. police department were plugged in to jody hildebrandt too and the church and thus the underlings the cops responding to the scene were afraid to do their job because of this powerful woman 
who was plugged in with the LDS. Yeah. You, look, you and I have seen special treatment for people who are well-connected politically in New York City. We've seen it. It's inexcusable, but it happens. It's always happened. It always will happen. And if if that is the case, you know, shame on everybody. Shame on those supervisors. Shame on everybody that would take part to con- actively conceal this sort of thing from, from being exposed. Uh, no excuses for that whatsoever. Absolutely not. So as we continue to break down my interview with Jesse Hildebrand, the niece of accused child abuser, Jody Hildebrand, business partner, co-defendant Ruby Frankie, there's a lot more to get into because they claim that they were victims of intense psychological, emotional, physical abuse at the hands of their aunt. But after multiple failed escape attempts, finally, Jesse saw an opening. The last time that she ran away, she managed to hide out in a church and get some rest before she came in contact with a man who fortunately wanted to help her rather than hurt her. I ran. I mean, I just ran. I ran, ran and I ran and I ran. And I was so terrified that she was the entire time. I was like, she's right behind me. She's right. She just walked in the room. She just, she knows, she knows she's right behind me. And in all reality, she probably didn't know that I left for hours and hours because she didn't, she didn't, she wasn't looking in on me. Um, and I, Thanksgiving point, there's a, there's a golf course and the golf course is surrounded by a large fence. And I had unintentionally ran into the golf course and I came and I, when I re when I realized that I was fenced in, I just collapsed. I, I, I fell apart because I was so terrified it's like those dreams you have when you can't run. You're running away from somebody, but you can't really run. That's what that was like. That's what that felt like. Where like this one little mistake I made is going to send me back. But then I, thankfully, she didn't find me. And I, I just started walking and, and running. And I ended up sleeping in a church. I ended up walking along the highway. And I, I'm sure I looked just a mess. Mm-hmm, I had a skirt, mm-hmm. had this massive jacket. I had these ear, this ear thing. Um, I had these purple tights and moccasins where my feet were coming through the bottom. That's what I had. And like this like striped shirt. And I, I'm sure I just like was a, just a mess. And mm-hmm. this man stopped along the, the highway and was like, hey, do you need a ride? And I was like, nah, I'm good. I'm so good. Like, Fresh 18, I was lying. I was I lied about my age and I lied about my name because I was so scared that I would be sent back. Um, and this man was just, he was very sweet. He was just like, something's wrong. And he knew it. He knew something was wrong. The only phone number I had was a friend, um, my friend Shambo, who helped me escape, went like this will help me escape the streets, like when I did end up going to a homeless shelter. And- that is incredibly harrowing story there and you just feel what those years must have been like for you know mike if this was stopped back when she reported this uh we wouldn't have these other victims would we that's right that's right the longer it went on the more victims there were and the more entrenched the abuse was and and that and the more damage done to those poor children and that's the shame of it absolutely 
Jesse Hildebrandt and how tough that must have been for them. It also, I have to tell you, feels like a horror movie if we take all of these allegations as true. So with all of that in mind, I asked Jesse about the current situation with Ruby and Jody and what it's like to suddenly see one of your family members on the news for child abuse. Here's what Jesse Hildebrandt had to say. I was in shock, not because of what they were saying about Jody, but the fact that she was being held accountable um, mm. was completely just it's still I'm still having a hard time um, coming to terms with that and making it make sense in my brain. Um, this is something that I have been trying to talk about for almost 15 years and no one in authority, no one in my, not that no one in my family, but the people that needed to hear didn't listen. Um, nothing was done. So for it to be for 15 years to have something be so minimized and marginalized and invalidated, and then to wake up to a headline to make, making it national news is just whiplash and it's fully full extent but here's the thing and it's very important to state this that even though these two children were rescued in fact the four youngest children of ruby frankie they've all been taken into state custody it doesn't end the long-term effects don't end that's something jesse told me that they fear the long-term repercussions that ruby frankie's children may have to deal with for the rest of their lives and once they turn 18, once they're no longer children, it doesn't stop. This nearly killed me. This has affected every aspect of my life. Every single part. My ability to have friends, my ability to have partners, my ability to hold jobs. I've, I mean, I have complex PTSD from this. Well, now that Jody Hildebrandt is in jail without a bond, at least for now, I asked Jesse what their hopes are for the future. I want her to never have access to vulnerable people ever again. And more than just what I want for Jody, what I want for the community, for the, the culture to recognize that trust your instincts, build up that muscle of intuition. Because the things that you're feeling are true. Again, want to thank Jesse Hildebrandt for such an incredible interview. We will, of course, continue to follow any developments in the Ruby Frankie and Jody Hildebrandt case. Everyone, thanks. You know, Mike, the, the, the thing that's amazing to me is that we watch Jesse Hildebrandt, and she's such, she's so articulate. Mm -hmm. She's such a believable witness. She's such a believable complainant. Yet, could you imagine? trying to report something like this and no one's listening to you. That's got to be also uh, one of the triggers of the PTSD she's going to have for the rest of her life. She was trying to report something that was happening and no one would listen to her. No action was taken. And we're talking about the police she reported it to. And no one would do a damn thing for her. Right. And it may not even be that the police didn't believe her at all. The police could see some of these things with their own eyes. They just didn't want to believe it, and they didn't want to take action. And this is going to stick with her. She said PTSD. She's a very articulate young lady. This is going to stick with her for a long time. Uh, trust issues with authority figures, you know, uh, relationship issues with family members. And she's um, looking at her cousins, who are, you know, now the center of, of Ruby, the Ruby Frank case. 
and um, looking at this and, and uh, you know, she needs support. She needs support. She's a young lady. She needs support. Hopefully she'll get it from grandparents. And I'm just wondering where were the grandparents and aunts and uncles in all this? Did they approve of it? Did they not know about it? But uh, it's a mess. It's a dysfunctional uh, situation. And I'm sad that uh, for, for this young lady that she tried to get help numerous times. Nobody would listen or they would listen and not care to take action, which is probably even worse. No excuses. No excuses whatsoever. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's a sad, uh, sad case. And we, uh, being formal law enforcement, take this as uh, really poor, poor policing poor response, poor investigation, actually a crime through omission, really. Uh, it, it is a crime. You don't take proper police action in a situation like this. It's an A misdemeanor, you know, and if anyone wanted to push this, but again, I'm sure the whole system in this area is just, you know, everyone shakes their head and goes, you know who's involved in this, who's in charge of this, and we get it. Right. We understand it. I think that uh, that's a big part of it. And um, we can sit here in New York and uh, choose not to uh, see that. But it's clear. I see the people in the chat saying, you know, who's behind all of this, right? Yeah, uh, unfortunately, we do. But when I say it and not have firsthand knowledge other than you guys reporting it to me, there's a whole other faction that gets takes great uh, umbrage at that and supports the very church that may be supporting this bad, these bad actors. Mike, your final thoughts. Final thoughts for, for everyone in the, in the chat. And thank you very much for the, and the, for the viewers, you know, to listen to this podcast. Um, hopefully this is, you know, um, and it unfortunately probably is, this is probably typical of many other things. There's probably many families that have these kinds of stories, too many kinds of stories like this. Um, but uh, we hope and pray that these kids can get through this and that they can move on and have productive lives. But, you know, the it is perhaps, you know, very delayed justice and perhaps it's been denied justice. But hopefully there will be some sort of healing for this family, uh, for these children, and that uh, they can move on with their lives and the uh, perpetrators of these crimes uh, be punished and be punished severely because they knew what they were doing and it went on for a long time. You know, one thing I wanted to ask you, uh, just one quick question. Do you think the Frankie kids love their mother, Ruby? I think they do. I, I think they do. I, I think there's a, a bit of it, you know, um, they were dependent on her uh, for everything. They had whatever they got. If they had the beanbag chair, they had their laptop, their cell phone, it was all paid for by what she did. And they might not have wanted to be on a YouTube channel, but they did the best they could to try to imitate, you know, the Brady Bunch. And um, yeah, uh, yeah, I think they do love their mother. They may not agree with what she did. They may not understand why she did what she did. But I think they they did love live love their mother, and I think in many ways they do still love their mother, and it's going to be very complicated to work through that in the future to come to a point in their adult lives where they could look back 
with the with the with the uh, distance of time and space and say what was my relationship with my mother but i think at this point yes they still do love their mother you know mike i was going to say the same exact thing so uh, we must be on the same wavelength <laughs> no i really do believe they still love yeah. their mother but oh, sure. uh, which would make it very difficult to testify against her because yes. i think there still is um a child's love for for their mother even mm -hmm. as egregious as her behavior was oh, folks yeah. that's our show for today uh thank you so much for tuning in we'll stay on top of this case uh as it progresses uh it's going to move along very slowly and we acknowledge that and i i said mike said before um justice delayed is justice denied <laughs> he didn't quite say the limerick but i thought he was going to say that but <laughs> that is a limerick justice delayed is justice denied anyway folks have a great night from police off the cuff real crime stories we'll see you on the next time okay One episode, just